Luke chapter 1, if you will join me. Good to see you. I agree with Mike. Um, it's, a, it's a good to see this group. Uh, some of you weren't here last week, and that's why I don't want to... Pre- no, I'm kidding. Uh, it is good. It is, we were kind of sparse. All you that are right in this section, thank you so much for being here this morning. I wonder, like, what happened last week? A bomb went off in our section. But I'm going to put our section and our harmonies against any other. So if y'all ever want to have a sing-off, our, our harmonies, I think we can win. I don't know where all I was getting it from, but I was, I was hearing it really good this morning. Joining in with the trio, so uh, those were not planned comments, so let's get back on track. Luke chapter 1, this is where we started last week, so as, as you're finding that, and Merry Christmas to each of you, Christmas Eve, what a great day. Um, and I do hope you have a very Merry Christmas, and I hope you do take Mike's advice and we keep the Lord in it, and that's what we want to do this morning. Uh, just before I do that, uh, one thing I want to point out, it will not apply to all of you, but it will apply to some. In your bulletin, there's a notation on the inside at the bottom about those that give. You see an envelope about the Lottie Moon offering. I think right now we're around 12000 last I heard. We'd love to see that climb and grow. I believe it will in the next couple of weeks. Um, but as far as, like, if you say, I give online. If you want that to count in your contribution giving in this year, um, it has to go through. In other words, if you put something today... It gets counted, right? If you put something in next Sunday, which is the 31st, it'll get counted. But if you do your online, it's just a weird thing. It takes time to process. And if you do like online giving like next Saturday or Sunday, it is not going to process until a few days later when the books will have been closed. So I would advise you, if you're going to do that, um, probably want to do it by Wednesday, maybe Thursday. I imagine it might get through there by Thursday. Uh, just, to, just to throwing that out. I know it's a strange way to start our message. All right. So now move that to the back. Luke chapter 1. This is where we were last week. I'm not going into all of the passage. We're going to shorten the text by quite a few verses, uh, 11 or 12 verses this week. And we're going to hone in really more on the beginning. Uh, So last week uh, I did something I've never really done. And we kind of spent a lot of our time on the response of Mary to what we're about to read. And we noted four great things. So here's the key. This was not Mary worship. We started the message by Totally trying to demolish Mary worship. That is wrong, and it's happening a lot this morning. It'll happen a lot the next couple of days. It goes on all year round. It's wrong. It's sinful. But we noted four great things about this young lady. Number one, we noted that she was highly favored. I dare say the most favored woman in the history of the world. It's just undeniable. Highly favored. But we learned a lesson. Just because someone's highly favored by God doesn't mean their life on earth is easy. Right? So we learned that lesson. Secondly, we noted, again, I may be reading too much in, but this girl is encountered not just by an angel, but by the angel Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, according to verse number 19. He tells Zechariah, you want to know why, what I'm telling you, Zechariah is going to come to pass? I stand in the presence of God. When this angel shows up to Mary, she does not seem devastated, overwhelmed. She doesn't panic. This girl seems to have a calm, deep, settled peace about her. She just has a security That's what comes across. She was troubled, not by this angel's appearance, but it's what he said. She's troubled by what he says about her being favored. Third thing we noted, this girl had tremendous faith. She possessed great faith. She believed that what was going to happen to her, as was said, had never happened before, but she knew that it was going to happen. So much so, she simply asked, how is this going to happen? How is it going to happen? Since that's going to happen, how? And you'll see that in a moment. And then the last thing we noted about her is, man, it just, the whole text 
Even the extended part last week just drips with this girl has great humility, tremendous humility. She sees herself as a servant of God. Uh, she's shocked by what the angel says because she apparently doesn't see herself as one that's like anything special. And so we spent a lot of time on Mary last week. But uh, Grace, I'm going to throw you a curveball. Um, I'm going to jump past the text to the first note. So if you would hop there, if you're taking notes this morning, here's where I actually want to begin. We said all those wonderful things, and they're true, and they were right, and they were not out of bounds to say those things about Mary. But Warren Wearsby is correct when he notices that Gabriel's whole point and Gabriel's emphasis in this text is on the greatness of the son and not on the greatness of the mother. So that's a key thing. We're getting ready to read that, and you should feel that. Yes, we say some wonderful things about Mary, and they are absolutely true. But his whole point is the child in you is the one who's going to be great. It's not like, oh, how great Mary is. It's how great is this child named Jesus. And so once you've written that, would you join me in chapter 1 of Luke, verse number 26. Let's see what the Bible has to say about Christmas this morning. Verse 26. In the sixth month, that references to actually a lady named Elizabeth. This is a relative of Mary. She's six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And that was a miracle, and you'll see why. In the sixth month, this, that already preceded this, how that came about. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel gets his second assignment. He was sent from God. This is a real event. This is a real place. So there's God, and there's Gabriel standing in the presence of God, and he apparently gets sent on these errands. He's been sent on one previously, and here's his second chapter one. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee, northern Israel, named Nazareth. Real place, real place, Nazareth in Galilee. Here comes Gabriel to earth. And he has this very specific assignment because he comes to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. We have two genealogies of Joseph, and both show that he is a descendant of David. And she's already married legally. They're just, they haven't, they're not living together. They're in a one-year waiting period to prove that Mary was pure, and that's what the Jews did. So here comes this angel Gabriel to this virgin, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now we really get into our text. And he came to her, verse 28, he came to her and said, so here comes Gabriel, and he shows himself, and he says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, not troubled by an angel like Almost everybody else is in Scripture, terrified. This girl is so settled and so secure, it's like, what did he say? And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I read between the lines, and I kind of offered, like, why would a being like that call me favored? What is this about? Verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Don't be afraid. You have found, you don't even know it yet. You have found tremendous favor with God. And then he explains the favor. Here it comes. And behold, look you. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. As we said last week, your firstborn son, you don't get to name him. God's already named your son. You should call his name Jesus. This is what's supposed to happen. This is what's going to happen. This is what happened. We know his name's Jesus. Gabriel continues. He will be great. Now, I don't have this point. He will be great. 
in the points this morning because it's the point of each point. Why is he going to be great? We should unpack why he's great in our text. Gabriel tells Mary he will be great. So you are going to have a son. You're going to conceive in your womb. And you're going to call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. So the most high, your son, is going to be called the son of the most high. Right now she's got to be thinking, how is that even possible? That don't even sound right. Sounds wrong. Continues. And the Lord God, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. God will give to your child the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, Israel, forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, because she believed, said to the angel, How? How will this be since I am a virgin? Verse 35 is one of the great mysteries. As I said last week, it occurred to me last week. This is just prophesied and predicted by Gabriel. We're never told exactly when it happened. We're not told the specifics of how it happened. We're not told, is she asleep? Is she in a trance? Does she even know when this happens? We don't know. All we know that it happened sometime after verse 38 and before verse 39. Verse 35 is key. The angel, So how will this happen since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, this is all we have. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power will. Of the most high will overshadow you. You're going to have a son. You're going to conceive in your womb. And you're going to call his name Jesus. And he'll be great. And he's going to be called the son of the most high. And God, the Lord God, is going to give unto him the throne of his father David. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He's going to rule and reign over the house of Jacob forever. How? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the most high is going to overshadow you. That's all we have. So mysterious, so sacred. The next word is key. Look in the middle of verse 35. Therefore, because of verse 35a, verse 35b is going to be a fact. Therefore, because verse 35a, therefore the child to be born will be called holy. We literally just finished singing a melody, a medley of the holiness of this one, this son of God, this child. For the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And because this all sounds so fantastic and abnormal and impossible, Gabriel gently encourages her to take faith. And he says in verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age. Yes, I know Elizabeth's my relative. She's old. She's barren. Her and Zachariah can't have kids. Oh, no, no. Something's changed there. She just hasn't told the world about it. She's been in hiding. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So rest your mind. Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, look you. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. Her attitude, let God's disruptive way be done in my life. Would you notice three things with me this morning from our text as we focus on Jesus? Number one, Jesus is the king. 
over all kings. Jesus is the king over all kings. Would you look back at verse number 32? He will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Jesus is the king over all the kings. Now this is a little troubling to me. And I hope we're going to get just a touch of theological for a second. We're going to get a touch of theological a few times in our text this morning. Here comes the first one. So ask the Lord. Lord, show me what this means. When we read this phrase, God will give to him. Think about that. That means it hasn't happened. God will give to him the throne of his father David. That tells me this is an event. This is an event in time. But I'm putting my mind to this and I'm trying to think, what is this about? Because I know who this person is and you are, again, I'm going to get to this in a minute. And when we get there, act like it's, you're, it's a surprise and you don't know it, okay? But for now, we're going to go ahead and, and uncover what we already know and take the surprise away. We're talking about the Son of God. So here's what I know. This Son of God is equal with God the Father. The Son of God is equal with God the Father, which means they're co-equal in their attributes and in their authority. And because of that, I know that the Son of God was already the king of the universe before there was a universe. And that is not wrong to say. Think about it. Go back in eternity past. There is no universe. He's already the king, the son of God, being equal with God in authority and attributes. He's already the king of the universe. So then what is this? He, God, is going to give to him a throne. And so all I could come up with this week, a couple of weeks ago, was this thought. It's a lot like Matthew 28. Remember Matthew 28, verse number 18, Jesus is with his disciples. He's about to ascend. He's already been resurrected. He's died on the cross and resurrected. And he tells the disciples in verse 18, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. So here's what I know. Hang with me. We're almost, we're kind of nearing the end of this point already. This is a short one. What we know is that Jesus is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. You say, then has this already occurred? No, this event has not yet occurred. This is coming. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to write the following. Verse number 32, what it's saying here is, verse 32, the angel says, the Lord God will give to him. You say, then I guess that has happened. He's on the throne of David. Is he on the throne of David right now? No, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, but he's not seated on the throne of David yet. So what this tells us is this is referring to something that is literal and new. Pause. It is literal, it's going to happen, and it's something new. But wait a minute, Jeff, if, if in eternity past he's already been king as son of God, what is new about it? It is new because the son of God for just 2,000 years now has become a man. And so what is new about this is that a man is being given this eternal throne of David and his kingdom will rule forever and ever and of his kingdom there will be no end. If you're taking notes, I want to give you a couple of thoughts. Write this one down. This will begin. You know when it will begin? When will Christ? You say, right now he's seated and ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. He has all, all authority in heaven and earth. But he's going to actually be given the throne of his father David at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. At the beginning of the thousand year reign. And it's going to carry right on through and go into eternity. So it begins at the millennial kingdom. But we learn two lessons from here. And here's one of them. 
What this means, verse 32 means, is that all the promises that God made to Abraham and to David are going to be fulfilled literally. And I realize that I'm now I'm breaking off with some people, perhaps even in the room, and I just I, I, I keep it real simple. I believe when God made promises to Abraham and to David, they are going to literally be fulfilled. Other people say, no, all the promises made to Abraham and David are fulfilled in the church, as if all that's been said to Israel is now in the past. I don't go there. Just this past week, I, I kind of went ahead and finished the book of Revelation in my private reading. And you know what I found? I'm going to spend eternity in this place called the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem has walls all around every side. And those walls have 12 layers of a foundation. And it has 12 gates, three on the north, three on the south, three on the east, three on the, on the west. And what I read, those, those 12 foundations of these walls around where I'm going to be living, the New Jerusalem, they're each named after the 12 apostles. What do you think the 12 gates are named after? The 12 sons of Jacob. So what that tells me, the church and Israel have promises and they are literally going to be fulfilled. So here's one of the things this tells me. It's going to begin in the millennial kingdom. The promises made to David are going to be literally fulfilled. And what this means is that one of us, let this sink in, one of us, a man, is going to rule and reign over all creation throughout eternity. Would you write that down? And as you're doing that, we're thinking about Christ as the great king. And it occurred to me, and I was actually helped with this thought by a lady to my left sending the staff an email this week. And I want to remind you of what she reminded us. Christmas is a great time. I want to encourage you, Gracie. I know you're writing a note, but be listening. Christmas is a great time for us to take hope. Take hope in this. You say, I need some hope. Take great hope. That because we know that God made these promises, that the Christ, the Messiah, the great deliverer would come, and he kept those promises. We know because he kept those promises that now he has promised that that same Savior, Son of God, is going to come a second time. You say, but it's been a long time. It's been 2,000 years. It hasn't happened. Yep, just as they waited and waited, and, they, and he was the long-expected Christ, the Messiah, come thou long-expected Jesus we are now living in a time where we would love for Christ to come. It's, it's going to happen. Sink your teeth into that. Bite into that. God kept his word there. He will keep his word again. And so the thought occurred to me this week. Jeff, tell the people. What we're reading in Luke chapter 1 is the eternal reality. This, verse 32, 31, 32, 33. This is the eternal reality. You say, got it. No, you don't understand. What you're living in currently is the story land. You're just living in the story land. We have to remember, I, get, I forget this. I get so caught up in what's going on around the world in my life and all the, the highs and the lows. This is a good time of year at Christmas to remember God keeps his word. Jesus is going to come back, and when he does, we're going to move into that millennial kingdom and into the eternal state. And when we do, this is going to be what Revelation calls the former things that have passed away. Do you understand? Eternity is so much longer than this little thing we call history. Don't get overly caught up and bought in and invested in history, this little time period. Use this. To lay up treasures and have an effect for later.
This is coming. He's the king of all the kings. This is a real event. Number two, would you notice with me secondly that Jesus is holy. We just sang about it. He's holy, both God and man. That'll make more sense in a moment, I hope. He's holy, both God and man. I'm going to go back, if you would, verse number 35. How is this going to be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore. So what Gabriel says, as I pointed out a while ago, because of verse 35a, what's going to happen is verse 35b is going to happen. Therefore, the son to be born will be called holy. Earlier in our text, we're told that this child, Mary, your child, is going to be called the son of the most high. The idea of called there is not just going, hey, some people are going to run, run around and start calling your child the son of the most high. No, he will be acknowledged to be the son of the most high. Let's just be honest with you. Hey, for any woman's child, for a woman's child to be called the son of the most high, that is blasphemy. That is blasphemy unless you have the conditions in this passage. We know that Mary is a virgin. And some people through the years and smart theologians try to figure out like, well, you know, the word here and in this text, what it can actually mean is a young maiden of marriageable age. Stop it. Nonsense. Knock it off. What it means is a young lady who had never had sex with anyone before. It is important. It is extremely significant that we understand that Mary was a virgin. Obviously, one of the reasons is, you say, why is that so significant? Number one, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ kept herself pure sexually. So when God's going to highly favor and when he's going to use someone for this special task, he just so happened to use someone that had kept herself sexually pure. But that's not the main reason why that's important. The main reason this is significant is because it guarantees that this child had no human father. He didn't have a human father. He couldn't have had a human father. It's not like, well, maybe she was with a man a few days before this and that's not what caused the child Holy Spirit caused the child, but it was close enough to where that person pops up later and says, hey, this baby just was one of those that went past nine months. That's my child. Nope, not, not possible. And it's not such that after this event that all of a sudden she has sexual relations with another man and then he's called a premature. Well, he looks really developed at nine months, but it's a premature baby because of that man. No, she never had sexual relations with any man all the way until Christ was born. Very significant. Again, if you're taking notes, write this thought. Because Jesus had no human father, and he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary, he's holy. So what does holy even mean? I'm going to offer two thoughts. Both are valid, and I think both are true. And I think both are to be taken from the text. He had no human father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and the power of God. The Almighty God within her, that means, number one, that he is perfectly pure, perfectly sinless, because he had no earthly father. I don't understand all that God did here and all the rules that God has applied. He has an earthly mother, but because the Holy Spirit and God the Father, the power of the Most High, are what conceived this child in her because of that. He has no sin nature. He has no original sin nature. And that's important because when he dies on the cross, God the Father will accept his sacrifice on the cross. It is acceptable because he is pure and sinless. Number two, and really to the point that I had you write this down, I'm going to spend 
the rest of our time here on this, on this second point, in this second bullet point, and that's this. He is holy, meaning that he is completely unique. He's completely unique because his Father is God Almighty, the Lord Most High, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and a woman was a virgin. He's completely unique. He's not like anyone else, meaning he is the one and only God-man. He is the God-man. If we were to make this category and say, all the beings and all of us go in a category. We all go in a category. We're in a category of people who are currently alive. There are those who have already passed away. And there's a category of those who have not yet been born. And there's animals and insects and angels and all the trees and all, everything. But if we go into this category and say, the God-man category. I know about Roman mythology and Greek mythology. And those are fairy tales. When it comes to the God-man category, there is one person in it. The one and only son of Mary who is the son of God. He's in a category of one. He is holy. He's separate. Everybody else over here, he's a, even God the Father is not in this category. The Holy Spirit is not in this category. Just the Son of Mary. Let's talk about this just for a moment. Would you look back, if you would, look at verse number 31. And behold, I want you to notice some simple, simple words just to make a simple point. Make the point obvious. We're bringing two things together. We're going to talk about the God-man. Look at verse 31. The angel prophesies what actually does happen, and he says, Behold, you, you, he's talking to Mary. Mary's a girl, young lady. You, note the word conceive. You conceive, note the word womb. Putting it all together, you will conceive in your womb and bear. We've heard this word bear a son as bring forth. You will deliver a son. All of those words, you, a human being, you're going to conceive in your womb. And you're going to bear, bring forth, deliver a son. These are all terms that when we put them together, it's just literally a natural, normal, human birth process. And so that's what happened. I've said before that the miracle is actually verse 35. We celebrate the birth of Christ, but his birth process is literally that of all other humans. Very normal. Say, so what does it mean? Nine months. Mary put on weight. Mary's hips widened. Mary had contractions. And they hurt. And she cried. And she was sweating. And squeezing Joseph's hand. And when he's born, Jesus is crying. Eventually. And he's spitting up. And he's wearing swaddling clothes not just to keep clean, not just to keep warm. He's wearing swaddling clothes to keep from making everything around him a mess. Because this is a human baby. This is the son of Mary. And yet, what our text is bringing together, because he's this unique, holy, one-of-a-kind person, he's not just human, he is also the son of God. And that's a great idea, the son of God. But I'm going to follow what uh, I saw Larry do a few weeks ago. We kind of need to, I'm not taking from that. The Son of God is absolutely what He is. But sometimes we need a little stronger way of putting it. Would you write this down? Scripture is clear that Jesus is not just the Son of God. He is God the Son. He said the same thing. It is, but we need to think about it. He is God the Son. Mark your spot after you've written that. You're in Luke chapter 1. 
Go, if you would, John chapter 1. Put you a little marker over in John chapter 1. We're not going to linger long, but we do need to hit, like, what does this mean? What are you saying? He's not just the Son of God. He's God the Son. What are we talking about? This little baby that's coming, this baby that's born. It's Mary's baby. It is. But watch John chapter 1. Again, we go back to verse 1. Would you look at it in your copy of the Bible? The inspired apostle John writes, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning. So he's going back before there was creation. So going back to the beginning, we'll call eternity past, eternity past. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. So right there, if that's all we had, we may be thinking, so is the word a thing? Is it a force? What is this word that apparently is at the beginning before anything else? There's no. It's not a thing. It's not a force. We're going to, be, we're going to learn it's a person because the Word was in the beginning and the Word was with God. The word with there means face-to-face, with. It's a person. There's God and there's the Word and the Word is with God. And the Word was God. So there's God and there's the Word with God and the Word is God. He. It's a He. Not it. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So now we're learning there's this category of made things. And he's not in it. He's at. Because some, these crazy religions around the world want to believe some of the Bible. And here's what they'll do. Oh, God made Jesus the son of God. And then the son of God made him. No, no, no. That goes against the scripture because the Bible's clear. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. It's not like he was made, and then he, no. He's on the outside category. Over there is the category of made things, and he's not in it because he made it all. And he is God. Leave you a marker there. Go with me, if you would, back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, look at verse number 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear... A son. She'll be a virgin when she conceives. She'll be a virgin when she actually has him. Her and Joseph waited. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And we know his name is Jesus, but he's also known as Emmanuel, which means God. Who is this child? God. God with us. One more in this time period, just to make this point. Go with me at the Hebrews. You might want to put yourself a marker there in the early part of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 1, just quickly. Go to Hebrews 1. It'll help you if you have it open in front of you. You'll have an advantage because I'm going to ask a question in a moment. Hebrews chapter 1, look at verse number 8. And by the way, I thought about this. I started thinking, like, how many verses do we use to show that Mary's human baby is God the Son, God? And it's just like, well, that one. And then like, no, no, Jeff, that'll be the whole message. We've got to do other stuff too. So here we go. Verse number 8. Hebrews 1, 8. But of the Son... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Read it again. But of the Son, so he's comparing the Son with angels, the writer. But of the Son, he says, your throne. He's saying to the Son, you have a throne, you have a kingdom. And your throne is the one that has a scepter of uprightness. And your throne is forever and ever. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
Your throne, oh God. So this person is calling the son God. That just leaves one big question. Fifth word in the text. Fifth word in the text. What word is it? What's the fifth word in the verse? Who is he? God. Go back to verse 5. It will not be on the screen. For to which of the angels did God ever say? To which of the angels did God ever say? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. He never said that to any of the angels. Keep following it on down. I didn't have time. Of the angels in verse 7, he calls this. Angels wins. His ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, God says, your throne, O God. God tells God, the son, you are God. You have a throne and your kingdom is a righteous, upright kingdom. Luke chapter 1. Help me out. Is, are the following things true? God, and I thought about using verses for this and I realized I don't have time. God is omniscient. Yes or no? You say amen if you agree. God is omniscient. Amen. God is omnipresent. Omnipresent. He knows all things. He is everywhere. God is omnipotent. All power. God is eternal. God is eternal. God is infinite. Amen. And Mary's baby is God, the Son. And so, what's happening? The Son of God, who becomes Mary's baby, He is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent and eternal and infinite. But what Christmas means, and the miracle of Christmas, is that God the Son, who has all of those attributes, began to be an actual human baby. And because He entered this life that way, He temporarily laid aside all of those glories to experience limitation. Literally what Christmas is, the wonder of Christmas, is the miracle, is that God, who is omniscient, Became a human being, a baby, who had to learn how to hold a utensil and to feed himself. How to chew his food. He had to learn how to speak words. He had to learn the alphabet. And he had to learn how to write. And he had to learn a trade. He had to learn things. And he grew in knowledge. But he, in eternity past, knows everything. 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 He's everywhere. And now he's in one place. He has all power. But now... Because Christmas, he can't hold his oversized head up for the first few days. His neck muscles won't just... This is the omnipotent one. The eternal one is now in a place to be measured by days and weeks and months and 33 years. You understand this? You have eternity past... And you have eternity future, just goes and goes. Which one's longer? Which one's longer? Neither is longer. And this one who's eternal is now entered time and space and the limitations 
Would you write it down? I like how Piper states it. Uh, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to warn you. There's three, four parts to his statement. There are four parts. Let them stack. Hear it first. Would you just hear it first? It's a little theological. But honestly, this is not top shelf. You can grasp this. It's not that hard. Piper states, Christmas is about the creator of the universe who himself is not part of the universe. When we were in Uganda, Uganda, we had to kind of teach some cult teachings. And some of the ones that I had meshed over with some of these far eastern religions. They really had this idea that the universe and God, the universe is God. And God, if there is a God, and all the various gods are in the universe. And someday, some way, your job in life is actually you are a God. And you just need to discover that you're a God. And someday you'll become part of the universe. They have a lot of different versions of that same nonsense. Piper is correct. You say, what is Christmas? What's the big deal? Christmas is about God, the creator, who himself is not part of the universe. So it's about the creator of the universe, who himself is not part of the universe, not part of the universe, becoming part of the universe without ceasing to be the uncreated, non-part of the universe. And you're like, what? Go home and chew on that. It's not that hard. What is Christmas? Christmas is about the creator of the universe who himself is not part of the universe becoming part of the universe without ceasing to be the uncreated non-part of the universe. He didn't stop being God. He started being a man and became part of this all happened about 2,000 years ago. And he was a real man. He was a real man. Do y'all remember the evidences in the Bible of him being a man? Do you remember the evidences of that? I, uh, I use the same ones every year. It's okay because you don't remember my messages. There's more than these, but these hopefully get the point across. Did he really become a man? Because some people... Try to teach away. Well, Jesus wasn't an actual man. I know that when a woman of Samaria sat down with him in John chapter 4, she recognized a human being. A male human being. A Jewish male human being. I know that when I read the Bible, this person, this child of Mary, got really tired. Really tired. A few weeks ago, I was the most tired I've been in quite a long time, and I'm 53 now, and so I didn't handle it as well. It was Tuesday in Uganda, and you got to understand, Friday for us, for me, started at 4.30 a.m. that morning, and we started on our process, and, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and so it was Tuesday. And you know how when you're going, 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 you're fine? You're kind of fine. But when you stop, so it was Tuesday night, their time about 6 p.m., which body time was about 10 a.m. Tuesday. 10 a.m. morning. That's body time, but we're 6 p.m. We're waiting on the ladies to finish up, and we've kind of stopped. And I'm standing out front of First Baptist Church of Iganga, and we're waiting on the ladies to finish. And I forget who was standing here and who was standing. I'm standing. I, I kid you not, because we had about two hours of sleep each night for like four days, and it just finally, that's when it hit. And I literally, 
I almost, I'm, I literally almost just fell over asleep. Hadn't been that tired in a long time, maybe ever. So I went and sat down between Brandon and somebody else, and then I started almost falling on my face sitting down. And finally the ladies came and we went to the hotel. We got six hours of sleep that night. That was a great night. As Astrid laughs. She remembers it. Jesus was in a boat with 12 of his disciples, several of whom are expert fishermen on the lake of Gennesaret. We call it the Sea of Galilee. And they're in a storm that is so bad. These expert fishermen are absolutely, it is taking on so much water. They know that they're going to die. This is it. We're going to die. This storm is that bad. And Jesus is just so exhausted. He's asleep through the whole thing. That's a man. He's on a cross. He's bleeding. He's on a cross and he says he's thirsty. He who created everything. He who has no body took a body so much so he's now bleeding and he's thirsty. He became a real man. Would you look at verse number 37? And so the angel is talking to Mary and no doubt this all sounds fanciful. But Gabriel says, in essence, Mary, you should believe like you do. For nothing will be impossible with God. This sounds impossible. Y'all see this container? Work with me. Some really smart people would say I'm really stupid for what I'm about to say. And their IQ is a lot higher than mine, but they're not nearly as smart as I am. And they're not as smart as you are. So here's my question. If you had 100,000 gallons of water, could you put it in here at one time without dropping any? You're right. You couldn't. You couldn't. And I couldn't. But do you understand that God could take 100,000 gallons of water and put it in here at one time without losing a drop? And God can make 100,000 gallons of water come out of this container? God can do that. You know why? Because he's able to do far abundantly above all that you think. And so God is able to take this infinite, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, Son, and cause him to become a baby. And that's what we call Christmas. Would you notice the third thought this morning? Comes out of verse number 31, if you're taking notes. Jesus' name reveals his purpose. His name reveals his purpose. We know his name. Verse number 31, Gabriel tells Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And I know some of you know this, but let's just rehearse. The name Jesus is the New Testament written in Greek, again, for us it's now English, but it's this Yeshua, this Greek New Testament name, Jesus, is the equivalent of the Old Testament name what? Joshua, the Hebrew Old Testament, again, put into English, we hear Joshua. So Jesus is the New Testament equivalent of Joshua, which means what? What does Joshua mean? It means Yahweh, the Lord, saves. So here God tells Mary, you don't get to name your child. When my child and your child is born, I want you to name him Jesus, and his name is going to be the Lord saves. It's going to mean Savior. I want, I want everybody to know his name because his name kind of is going to tell his mission. He's Savior. You will call him Savior. I want my son's name to be Savior. And that's exactly what she and Joseph made happen. You understand? This is not the Lord, Yahweh, saves us through Jesus. Nope, it's not it. Yes, it's this, better. The Lord, Yahweh, 
saves us himself as Jesus. His mission's in the name. So some of you have heard me give lots of Christmas messages. And so you all know where I'm heading. But if I had a piece of paper, I'd have three blanks on it. And I would have you write down. So don't answer out loud. Why? Why did Jesus become a man? Why? Don't say it out loud. Okay, you got the main one, right? You got the main one. Why did he become a man? Let's review quickly. Number one, he became a man. So we're going to finish this morning with three reasons. Why? What's this purpose? Why did all this happen? Why did God send his eternal son to become this child of Mary and become this unique God-man? What's the purpose of that? Number one, by becoming a man, allow Jesus to better reveal God. He could better reveal God. God sent his son to better reveal himself. I told you to put a marker there in John. Would you go back to John chapter 1? As you're making your way, let's get our minds thinking. John chapter 4, we're told that Jesus says that God is a... Anybody remember this? starts with letter S. God is a spirit. So think, think, think. I know I'm, I know I'm hitting your mind a lot. And I, I pray, Lord... Let what's hitting our mind affect our heart and our lives. But we need to have this in our mind. This is a good time of year for us to get our theology right. So why did Jesus come? Because God is a spirit. What that means is God could be all around us. And because he's a spirit, we would literally never know anything about him. We wouldn't even know he's there. That's why if I were to give you a pencil and say, would you just draw a picture of what God looks You say you know God. You people know God. Write down. Draw a picture of what he looks like. You can't draw anything. Tell me in your own words, from your experience, what does God feel like? You can't tell me. What's God's voice sound like? You can't tell me. Like, really, I, who, whose voice is his voice similar to? What's God smell like? You don't have an answer. He's a spirit. So what that means is because he's a spirit, he has to reveal himself to us in ways that we actually get it. Has God done this? Yes. Creation. God has revealed himself in creation. We learn things about God. God has revealed himself to us in our conscience. We have this thing called a conscience. It's not perfect. It needs to be educated by the Bible, but it lets us know there is a God. People who don't believe in God have to overcome their original belief, this idea that, yes, there is a God. Somebody has to corrupt their thinking. God has given us something called providence. It's like just step back and watch what goes on in the world. And you may say, wow, God is patient, but eventually... I know that God does this and that, and he allows that, but look what eventually, I mean, there is a God. And then we have this runner-up of the greatest revelation of God, and that's this. You say, no, that's the great. this is the runner-up revelation, greatest. This is the special revelation of God. You're in John chapter 1, look at verse number 17. John says, for the law was given through Moses... The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we need to know about God. What's he like? What's his expectations? What's his attributes? For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Not really. They've seen, few saw a veiled manifestation of God. But this is true. No one has ever seen God. The only, look, at, look at your verse. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Hey, like, y'all know that nobody's actually ever even seen God? Really? Yeah. Nobody here has actually ever even seen him. But when you look at Jesus, 
you've seen a veiled manifestation of him in flesh. Because he came, verse 18, no one's ever seen God. The The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So we've got this law of Moses. Y'all help me out. What does the law of Moses help us know about God? It helps us know that God, wow, God is holy. We need to know that. Praise the Lord for Moses' law. We learned God is holy, and we've learned we've all offended him. And he's really angry at our sin. And because of that, we're all condemned to eternal judgment. Yes, we learned this in the law. But then along comes Jesus, verse number 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here comes, so is Jesus like, ah, listen, God's not really that mad about your sin. Oh, no. Jesus is like, God is really angry at your sin. And he's really just. And your sin will be punished. But there's more. He is a loving God. And he is a gracious God. And so Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. And so I'm thinking... Grace? Can that really exist with truth? Because the truth is we're all sinners who've offended God and we're born condemned and we've earned condemnation because of our sin. We're going to spend eternity in hell. This is the truth. Can that really get along with grace? Jesus comes along and says there's more to the story. So here's the key. All that Moses wrote is true. But none of the characteristics of God have to be compromised. None of them have to be compromised. Does the love of God cancel the justice of God? No. Does the holiness of God cancel the graciousness of God? Hey, you can't let them go to heaven. They're sinners. They have sin. No sin in heaven. So holiness just cancels his love? No. If you're taking notes, write it down. What Jesus reveals is that God can remain perfectly holy and just while still bringing us to himself. It can be done. God can remain holy, and he can remain a just God that punishes all sin. And yet he can still bring us to himself. And praise the Lord for such a revelation. We need Moses' revelation, and we need This greater revelation of Christ. Why did Christ come? Secondly, would you join me for the second and third ones are both in the same passage. Would you join me back in Hebrews? I want to review quickly what we looked at last year actually. Because it fits this morning. Hebrews chapter 2. So as soon as you've written that, would you turn there? You're going to want this open in your own Bible. You want to have access to that. Would you join me? Hebrews chapter 2 Join me in verse number 16. We're trying to answer this question. Did you get the first one? Don't don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. When I said, hey, why did Christ become a man? Did you get that one so that he could better reveal God to us? Some of you thought of that one. Some of you are like, I didn't have that on my list. I need to remember. Yeah, we need to remember. That's why we review. Secondly, look at verse 16. Hebrews 2, verse 16. Having just said... That the Son of God partook of flesh and blood. So now why? Verse 16, here we go. For surely it is not angels that he helps. So Christmas, this is God's doing. He makes the rules. Christmas does not help fallen angels. They don't get in on it. 
For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps human beings. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Let that sink in. He had to be made like his brothers in every, every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Come back to that in a moment. For because, look at verse 18. For because he himself, look at verse 18 with this pursuit. Why did Christ become a man? Why did the Son of God become a human being 2,000 years ago? For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Back to verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 18. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Number two. By becoming a man, allow Jesus to relate. He can relate with us. He can relate. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Every respect. What's the exception to that? The sin nature. Do you understand? This, I'm, I'm hitting this fast. God's son became a human being, an actual real human being, and he's gone through everything you go through. You're like, you don't, know, you don't understand, I'm struggling with something. Right? I'm telling you, he had a version of whatever it is you're struggling with. You're like, no, you don't understand, I'm struggling with this. Like, yep, he has a version of that. The only exception to that phrase in every respect is that it excludes our original sin nature. But in every other way, Jesus relates to us in every other way. This matters, ladies and gentlemen, because when you pray, when you go to God and you're asking God for help, He listens to you and He's willing to help you because He knows what it is like. That's the simplest I can say it. Take your cares and your troubles and your prayer requests to God because He knows what it's like. He became a man. He is a man right now. He lived on this earth, went through all the same types of things. Take your request because he knows what it's like. You say, what do you mean he knows what it's like? He knows what it's like to be poor. We got some people maybe listening around. You don't understand. We're not meeting our bills. Then tell God about it. God, we need some help. Yeah, Jesus was poor. He'll listen to you. He'll come. He'll help you. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like. Some of you are like, I have pain, Jeff, every day. My body, he knows what it's like to have pain. Go tell him about it. He cares. He will listen. He's willing to listen to you. He knows what it is like. He can relate. You say, I have great sorrow. I've had tremendous loss this year. Tell him about it. He knows what it's like. You say, I'm being rejected. You say, I have people doing bad things against me, and I didn't even do anything. Tell him about it. He can relate. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be hungry and cold and hot and have urges. You're like, you don't understand. I have these urges. Yeah, he did too. He had all the urges. In fact, he can relate with us in every way. Even in being tempted to sin. Even in being tempted to sin. But God, this one thing just keeps coming back. And Lord, you know how strong it is. He can relate. He'll listen. Take it to him. Offer it to him. The difference being he never sinned. 
And so if you hear that and say, yeah, they don't know what it's really like to be tempted. Do you understand he was tempted more than you? You say, no, nah, Jesus, he's, he's God. You just said he's God the Son. He wasn't tempted as much. Oh, no, he's tempted more than you. You say, how is that possible? You give in. You give in and quit and just do the sin. He never did. It built. He resisted. He took the whole brunt of the temptation. And so what that proves to us is that being tempted is not a sin. Being tempted is not a sin. Jesus was tempted. Before I hit our last point this morning, I want to read to you. Just let me read what I wrote yesterday morning. Grace View. You didn't choose to be born into a life of struggles and joy. You say, I didn't choose to be born. I know. You didn't choose to be born into a life of struggles and joys. At the end of which, you will die. You didn't choose it. But you did choose to sin. And because of that, you've earned God's wrath. But Christmas means that God's Son did choose to be born into a human life of struggles and joys, at the end of which he died, but his death was not like yours. It was the most excruciating death in the history of the world because he was dying for the sins of the world. And he did all of that because he loves you, and he did it to save your hell-bound soul. He loves you. He chose to do this. We call that the gospel. And with that, would you join me in number three this morning? And this is the one that all of us thought of. You say, why did Jesus have to become a man? Because it allowed him to die for our sins. You're in Hebrews chapter 2. We just looked at verse 16 to 18. There was a phrase at the end of verse 17. We brushed over, and now we need to go back to verse 14. Look at Hebrews chapter every, every year. I, I dare say... In one of my two messages, probably every year I've been here now, eight years in a row, I'm going to hit John 1. You've got to forgive me. I'm going to, if you ever preach up here two sermons on Christmas and you don't hit John 1 or Hebrews 2 at some point in those, shame on you. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 14. We've got to know the why. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, we all partake of flesh and blood. You have flesh and blood, I have flesh and blood. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He, God, the Son, partook flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And I say it every year. The primary number one reason that God's Son became a man is because as God, He could not die. God can't die. God is a spirit. The Son of God was eternal spirit, couldn't die. He becomes a man for various reasons, to reveal God, to relate with us, but primarily so that He could die, and by dying, use His death to defeat Satan and to defeat death because death threatens us. I'm going to take you from everything good. I'm going to take you from everything you love. Jesus came, he died, and now when we die, it doesn't take us from everything good and everything we love. It takes us to a better life because of his death. He, Satan honestly thought, I'm stirring up Judas, and I'm stirring up the Ju Jerusalem leaders, and they're going to pursue you, and they're going to crucify. He, he literally thought he was winning. He's just accomplishing the great plan of God. What a fool. 
He became a man so he could die. And so I conclude this morning in Romans 3. Never done this in our Christmas message, so if you would, join me back. Let's just finish Romans 3. This is where we'll finish this morning. And you really need to be in this text. So you remember earlier I said that we would get a little theological? Okay, we're about to do it again, but I'm telling you. If you, even if you're not a Christian, what if you were to say, Jeff, I'm not a Christian? Well, then that means you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. But I'm going to offer you, would you just pray to God right now? God, would you show me what this means, this text we're about to Apparently, this is an important text. This is a theological day. If you're a Christian, you need to know what Romans 3 teaches. Why did Jesus, why did the Son of God become a man? What is Christmas really all about? Oh, the great creator of the universe, who himself is not part of the universe, became part of the universe without becoming the uncreated, un, non-part of the universe. Okay? That's what happened. But why did it happen? So he could relate with us. So he could reveal the Father, but so he could die. What, how's that work? Look with me in Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, look at verse 21. Everybody there? Pray. Christians, pray. Lord, show me what this means. You say, I'm not a Christian yet. God, show them what this means. Verse 21, but now, A.D. 56, what we're about to read was not true 100 years prior to this, but in A.D. 56, from then till now, it is true. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But now, there is a righteousness from God. Everybody in here needs righteousness. But verse number 10 says, there are none righteous. There is none righteous. No, not one. None of you are righteous. And I'm not righteous by myself. But now, because of Christmas and Easter and the cross, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So there's a righteousness by trying to keep the law. Nobody's ever done it. You've already blown it. You don't have any righteousness by trying to keep the law. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Is that possible? Well, the verse says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So there's a righteousness that's apart from the law, and the law and the prophets bear witness. Oh, yes, there is this righteousness. Everything's really been leading toward this actual righteousness. It's an outside-of-you kind of righteousness. It's one you don't have. It's an alien righteousness has to be given to you. How can I be given righteousness? Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe, they get this righteousness from God given to them. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Is this really that important? Yes. For there is no distinction. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Listen, the best person you know and the most wicked, vile, meanest person you know, there's no distinction. 
There's no distinction. There's no difference. You're like, no, this is the best, kindest person, and this is the meanest, nastiest person. Biblically, all have sinned and fall short. There's no distinction between white Europeans and Africans and Hispanics and Asians. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified, declared righteous by God. How? If we've all sinned, even the ones we think are better than others, if we've all sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by His grace as a gift. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you this righteousness. I'm going to give you this justification salvation. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He had to become a man so he could die. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Come back to that in a minute. Wouldn't expect you to know what that means. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. By his blood. By Christ's blood. Why? To be received by faith. I believe that your blood on the cross, Jesus, saves me from my sins. Let's God pronounce me righteous. Gives me this alien, outside of me righteousness. Look in the middle of verse 25. Here we go. Why did God do it this way? This was to show God's righteousness. God is the one who's righteous. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God's been passing over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, A.D. 56 and following. So that he might be just. God is a God of justice that punishes sin. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Somebody puts their faith in Christ. God can justly and righteously say, Hey, you murderer, you adulterer, you fornicator, you drug taker, you hateful person, you foul-mouthed person, you blasphemer. I declare you righteous. How can you do that and still be just? Because of Christ made a propitiation. The result, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? Wait a minute. If that's how a person chooses to get righteousness, then what do we have to boast about? It's excluded. Getting saved doesn't lead to like, I'm a Christian. I'm really, really holy doesn't lead to that boasting is excluded so he asked this question then by what kind of law by a law of works God gives us Moses law do we work and work and work and keep it perfectly and then we're now I'm righteous look how much righteousness I have and we jump on the scale oh here's God's demands we get on the on the scale with all of our righteousness oh look you did or not no jump on the scale all you want jump up and down the scales up here the weight of the law is down here you have no shot Then by what law? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold, we conclude, that one is justified by faith. Apart from works of the law. By faith. Here's what you do. Lord, the law demanded this. And I got all my righteousness together. And I bundled it up. Carried it. Jumped on the scale. And it didn't move a lick. I need some help. And I believe that your son's death on the cross and his redemption is enough. So Christ, 
I'm putting my faith in you. And when a person does that, Christ gets on the scale. And when he comes on, he brings his righteousness, and then it balances out. And God says, Jeff Bartlett justified June 1979. That's the night he put his faith and trust in Christ. Justified, saved, forever. Even the sins he's not even committed yet, they're all gone. My son is that holy. His righteousness makes up for all of Jeff's mistakes and goof-ups and sin. You ever had that? Your last note comes out of verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Why did God do it then in this way? Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. In God's divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. If you take a note, you can start. You'll not see the whole note yet, but write this down. Forbearance in verse number 25 means that God righteously held the Old Testament saints. Hang with me. Watch. In the Old Testament, people who believed the promises of God, they died. And God righteously held them. So what does that mean? They couldn't go to heaven. Their sins haven't been paid for. But they didn't go to hell. God righteously in his divine forbearance righteously held the Old Testament saints in anticipation of when his son would come and when he would die on a cross and make himself the propitiation for our sins. So God held them in what's called Abraham's bosom paradise until Christ dies on the cross. And then now they are allowed to go into heaven with no sin because now their sin has been washed and cleansed and punished in Christ And now they have no sin. And the Old Testament saints are in heaven. And my mom, who died a couple years ago, is in heaven. And when I die, I'll go straight to be with the Lord. Why? Because Christ presented himself as a propitiation. You say, man, that sounds great and sounds important. Don't know what it means. Write it down. Forbearance means that God righteously held the Old Testament saints until Christ made a propitiation to appease God's wrath. God is angry at our sin every day. The sin of the unbeliever. He's angry at your sin every day. But Christ has presented himself as a propitiation to appease God's wrath. J.I. Packer words it this way. We are ever prone to to regard sin lightly. We regard sin lightly. We do it. It's easy come, easy go. We don't think a lot about it sometimes. Sometimes we feel bad when the consequences hit us. But for the most part... We're not worried about offending God. But God cannot take sin lightly and therefore Packer offers us two theological terms. And he writes the following. Expiation. Expiation is an action, he writes, that denotes the covering, the putting away, or the rubbing out of sin. So that it, sin, no longer constitutes a barrier to friendly relationship and fellowship between men and God. So expiation removes the sin that's a barrier. Once the sin's gone, now we can have a relationship with God. Now he writes, propitiation, however, in the Bible denotes all that expiation means and, it's all of that, and the pacifying of the wrath of God. So here's what happens. Christ's death on the cross not only took away our sin and washed away our sin, he knows God is angry at sin and he must punish sin. He couldn't just go and like, hey, I'll, I'll cut myself and let some blood. And there. No, 
He had to take the sins of the world and God poured out all of the wrath that he had built up on all sin. He poured it on Jesus on the cross and he paid for it. And he presented himself as an appeasement. God, you're angry. Put it on me so they can go to heaven. And how do you have it? By faith. So how do we respond? Here's your response. Can you honestly in your heart say, I have accepted Jesus' death on the cross for me? Has there ever been a time where you literally said, I'm going to stop trusting me trying to keep the law. I'm going to stop trying to keep the law. I've already blown it. And I'm going to believe in the death of Christ. He became a man on purpose, mainly so he could die. Have you ever put your faith in If you have not done that, do it right now. Do it right now. On the authority of the word of God. Verse 24, all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. I could lead you in a prayer. But ultimately what God is looking for, do you believe my promise? That's what he's looking for. Your second response is Mary. You say, Jeff, I'm already a Christian. Then how do you respond to Christmas? You do what Mary did. God... Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be. Your disruptive way. Have you ever, like I invite you this morning, before you go to Christmas tomorrow, let's do this this morning. Do it right now. Christians, just ask God, Lord, what is your plan for me? I see what your plan for her. What is your plan for my life? I'm signing up for it. I want it. I will do it. And promise God, give yourself to the Lord. The third response, it's not an accident that this time of the year is when we take up an offering for missions. So what you ought to do, what Christians ought to do, what should I do with this God who sent his son and he became a man and went through all the highs and the lows and the struggles and the joys and died this horrible death? How should I respond to that? Wow, he revealed God to me. He can relate with me. He saves me. How should I respond? You ought to give what God has given to you prayerfully to sending missionaries to the other side of the world and around the world because there's people who've never heard this message and they will die and go to hell. And when you do it, do it with the right attitude. Don't do it like you're doing God a favor. And let me let you know a little secret that most pastors are not going to say this time of the year. And please don't make me regret saying it. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. Grace View could use your money. Grace View could use your money. God doesn't need your money. So how should I give? Piper writes it this way. Here's his attitude to God. What if you did this? What if you told God? By giving to you what you do not need and what I might enjoy, I am saying more earnestly and more authentically, you are my treasure, not these things. I want to give you this. It isn't much. God, would you use this to send people around the world and give them this message? Please let me be a part. Do you want to be a part? Heads bowed, eyes closed. I would encourage you take some time this week to really use the various revelations of God to draw close to Him. Look at nature. Live with a clean conscience. Think. Think about providence of God. Read the word of God. 
But just know that when you are looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, you're looking at God revealing Himself as God. This is the highest revelation. And let it draw you to the Lord to love Him. What this means, what Christmas means is God wants you to know Him. And He wants you to love Him and He wants you to worship Him. You were made for this. Give yourself to the Lord. Mary did. Let it be. I'm your servant. Let it be. Just this morning, the Lord reminded me of a specific thing He wants me to do. Let it be. Maybe He's telling you, I want you to do something, and you've resisted. Just be like Mary. Let it be. Lord, let it be. I'm yours. I'm your servant. And would the Lord have you to give cheerfully? He's not broke. He's not broke. But you're like, wow. In light of God's great gift to me, how could I withhold when others have not heard? How could I keep all the light right here with me when some have no light? Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, if anyone here this morning has not yet had a time where they've stopped trying to keep your laws to be righteous, I pray that you would give them clarity of understanding that there is no hope in them trying to keep your laws. They've already broken it. That chain that they were trying to hold and pull themselves up to heaven, that's already broken. They're plunging into hell as we speak. So Lord, I pray that before it's too late that you would give them great faith to hear the message of Hebrews and Luke and Romans 3 to just cry out. Just put their faith and trust. You wrote it, God. It's true in AD 56. And so, Lord, it's true this morning. I'm taking you up. I want that justification through Jesus' death. Don't even know fully all the propitiation means. But he died for me. He gives me his righteousness. God, I want his righteousness. I receive it right now. I receive it. Lord, would you give somebody that faith right now? And then let them make it public. Let them make it known. Let them share that, that they did that today. And then, Lord, I put in your hands to move us in our regular giving and in our missions giving this month. May it be pleasing and useful. And may we give it cheerfully. Because of your great gift, Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Have a great week. Have a Merry Christmas.